0: Welcome to Noggin, the simple psychology podcast, where we discuss scientific research in simple and exciting ways that is applicable to everyone. I'm Ben Rasmussen. And I'm McKay Heaton. And we are your hosts. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. To start off today, I'm hoping you can humor me with a personal story. So this comes from my mission. If you listen to our introduction, you heard about how McKay and I both served missions for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. McKay served in Taiwan and I served in Eastern Ukraine. So this story comes from my time in Ukraine. For any of you who are not familiar with church missionary service, missionaries are always found in pairs of two. So the young men, you might have seen them walking up and down the street in white shirts and ties with badges on. They're always in pairs of two. And same thing with women wearing dresses and badges, also in pairs of two. So we call that a companion. So I was with my companion, and my companion at the time really loved to eat tomatoes, like apples. So we would go... (laughs) I'm serious. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, so we we would go to the store often just to pick up a banana or a tomato, just some sort of fruit as we were walking along just to kind of hold us over until our next meal. So we stop at the store and get a tomato, and he's munching on it. And he is about halfway through. By the time we get to the place we were walking to, we were meeting someone somewhere. And so I told him, well, are you going to finish it? Are you going to throw it away? What are you going to do? And he's, he said, oh, no, we never throw anything away here. And I thought, well, it's a half-eaten tomato. I'm not sure what else <laughs> you're going to do with it. And he said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Like We don't throw things away here.
1: Who will have another use for that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was my thought. But he said, watch, I'll put it on this. So we were kind of in this park area and there was a, a bench next to this trash can. And so, of course, I wanted to just put it in the trash can. I didn't think anything of it. But he said, no, watch this. I'll put it next to the trash can on this park bench. And by the time we are finished with our appointment and we come back out here, the tomato will be gone. So I said, all right, whatever. And so he puts it down. And we walk away, we have our appointment, we come back, and I book it over to the bench because I'm really excited to see whether or not the tomato's there. And sure (laughs) enough, it's gone. And I thought, no way. Someone just threw it away because I thought we were littering. So I look in the trash can, it's not there. There's a bunch of other trash cans around and a bunch of other park benches. So I start searching, and it's not in any of the trash cans, it's not in any of the bushes, It is this tomato is nowhere to be found.
1: Mind blown.
0: (laughs) So I thought to myself wow, I can't believe someone really took this tomato. And that has stuck with me after coming home, and it stuck with me for the rest of my mission service as well, because so many other things like that happened. And it wasn't necessarily, let's see if we can leave this here and someone will take it. But the Ukrainian people never throw things away they always find a second use for something. So this idea of reduce, reuse, recycle, Ukraine eats, (laughs) breathes, and sleeps. Reduce, reuse, recycle.
1: Especially they
0: eat half (laughs) eaten. Yeah, so they never throw food away. They always find another use for it. They don't throw things away. They're just very, very thrifty at everything that they do. And I just kind of thought that was a cultural thing. But today, as we'll talk about with epigenetics, there is research into why Ukrainians are like this. And it actually comes from something that happened to the Ukrainian people three generations ago, back in the early 1900s.
1: So Ben mentioned epigenetics. Some of you may know what that means. Others may not know what that means. We want to define it. So it's the study of the changes in organisms caused by modification of gene expression rather than alteration of the genetic code itself. Epigenetics is often referred to as cellular memory of human experiences. So for a long time, scientists thought that the only way to change people or to change organisms was by changing the genetic code. Like if you imagine the code of a computer, it was by changing The zeros and ones, they thought that was the only way to do it, change the one to a zero or the zero to a one. However, current research, you know, that goes back not too far, maybe, you know, 20, 30 years has found that you can actually keep the same code of genes, but you can turn genes on and off. I like to think of it as a light switch in your house. So in your house, you have all these lights and they have the potential to be turned on. But it doesn't necessarily mean every light is on at all times, right? When you're in one room, you're going to turn the light on because you need to see. But when you're not in that room, you're going to turn that light off. So epigenetics is like that. We have all these genes, but not all of them are turned on. But when we need it, genes will turn on and genes will turn off. And we're going to talk about a couple studies that show how human genes can shut on and off.
0: I like that visualization of a light switch. It's not changing the zero and the one. It's just turning the zero on or turning it off. And same thing with the one. It's turning it on or off. And so what we'll show you with epigenetics in these studies is it's not just turning a gene on or off in one generation, but two and three generations down the line. That gene is still turned on or turned off based on the experiences
1: that their grandparents had or their parents had. Yeah. It's super interesting. So you can pass on these epigenetics. So the first study that we're going to hop into is called parental olfactory experiences influences behavior and neural structure in subsequent generations. To translate that into English, basically what it means is that the parents' experience with smell changes their children and grandchildren's brain structure. So we're going to go through how they prove this and how this study worked. So the authors are Brian G. Diaz and Carrie J. Wrestler. January 2014 was when it was published in Nature Neuroscience. So in this experiment, they trained the first generation of mice to be scared of an odor. And they called this first generation of mice F0. So this F0 generation, every time they smelled a certain odor, they would get shocked at the same time. And so after they learned that every time they smelled that odor, they would get shocked. Every time they smelled the odor, they would get really scared because they thought they were going to get shocked. They used two different odors. One was called acetophenone and the other was propanol. And they also had one control group. After they trained this F0 generation to be scared of the odor, they took their offspring, so the first generation, which they called F1, which had never smelt any of the odors and exposed them to acetophenone or propanol. So what they observed was pretty amazing. So those mice whose parents were trained to be afraid of acetophenone and smelled acetophenone showed significantly more fear towards the smell. Crazy, right? So they had never smelled it before, ever. And they were never trained or shocked when they smelled it. But because their parents had, their parents passed down that turned-on gene. Wow, they were afraid of something they had never smelled. Yeah, they were like automatically afraid. That's mind-blowing. Very mind-blowing. So they were also more adverse to the smell as well. They would avoid it more than a control group. So the same goes for the propanol group. But if you took that F1 generation and then you expose them to a smell that they had never smelled before, but their parents were not trained to fear... They had no reaction to it, no significant reaction.
0: So that way they showed that it wasn't just a stinky smell. It was the smell itself that had been paired with their parents. Exactly. So it was that
1: smell that had been paired with their parents that they passed on the fear. So this is crazy. They also looked at the brains of this F1 generation of mice, and those who were trained to fear acetophenone had significantly more neurons dedicated to smelling that specific smell than the other groups. So the F1 generation rat brains actually changed because of their parents' experience with that smell.
0: Wow, there you go. There's the the light switches being passed on.
1: Exactly. So they're keeping that light switch on because their parents' genes and their parents' bodies are thinking like, oh, I need to give this to my kids because they're going to experience it as mm-hmm. well which is absolutely crazy. So this study is really huge. I just highlighted one part, and I'll go through the other parts really quick. They did the same experiment with rats, but they did it with noises instead of with smells. So they played a tone and then paired it with a shock. And then when the F1 generation heard the tone, they were afraid of it, even though they had never heard it before. They also did it with IVF. And it worked in the the second generation as well, in the F1 generation. So it's the genes literally being passed on. And they also found that there was a gene in my sperm that changed significantly when compared to a control. So this gene is called the OLFR151 or OLFR151. Anyways, it's just (laughs) a gene. Rolls right off the tongue. (laughs) (laughs) olfr Um, it's just a gene and they found that it was significantly less methylated than a control gene. So all this is saying is like, they found the mechanism by which epigenetics in this case worked. It was methylation of a gene.
0: I think it's really cool that they were able to find the biological changes that happened because with epigenetics, when I first heard about it, I thought, well, of course, if a grandparent experienced something, they're going to pass on that story to their kids and then they'll pass that story on to their kids as well. And so maybe it's just a behavioral thing rather than a biological thing, but that's really fascinating that they found the genes that changed in the sperm and they found the differences in the brain that were a result of epigenetics.
1: Yeah. When I first heard about this, absolutely blew my mind. I could not <laughs> believe that this was happening. That happens a lot on this show. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, uh, a question that I thought maybe our listeners might have is Does that mean if my parents had crappy lives, then I'm doomed? You know, the generation after World War II, are they doomed to have stressed out lives because of what their parents experienced? That's and a fair question. Yeah. For me, when when I'm thinking about it, no, it doesn't. It, It means that you've been affected by what has happened to your parents, but that doesn't determine everything about you because you can retrain your brain and your body to not be afraid of your acetophenone through a lot of different methods like cognitive behavioral therapy or medication or lifestyle changes. So those things can help us retrain our brain and our body to turn off the light switch, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I I think there's a lot of areas that this applies to. A couple that I can think of off the top of my head are there's certain races or types of people Um, of different heritage who are more or less susceptible to alcoholism for example so that's something that doesn't necessarily have to define your life there's behavioral changes that you can make you can live your life in a different way based on the diseases or habits that you're susceptible to because of the genes choices experiences traumas
1: of your ancestors of your parents your grandparents and so forth. Exactly. And what I love is that that gives a ton of hope for your future generations as well. If, if you're someone who wants to have kids, if you make good lifestyle decisions now, that's literally going to affect two, three, four generations down the line. It, li- it literally will because you are passing on those genes that were altered by epigenetics. Our next study we want to talk about is called
0: Living in Survival Mode, Intergenerational Transmission of Trauma from the Holodomor Genocide of 1932 to 1933 in Ukraine. This is a study by Brent Bezo and Stefania Maggi. Um, it came out in 2015 in the Journal of Social Science and Medicine. This study relates back to my story. So the story of the half-eaten tomato might sound like a silly story, but it stems from transgenerational trauma that Ukraine as a country experienced. So the Holodomor genocide, which Holodomor is derived from the Ukrainian words to kill by hunger, occurred from 1932 to 1933 in Soviet Ukraine. It was a man-made famine that killed millions of Ukrainians. So Joseph Stalin, the leader of the USSR at the time, uh, with the goal of starving Ukrainians, ordered the confiscation of harvests and food in Ukraine. Ukraine at the time was a very large producer of a lot of the food in the USSR. So he set up blockades and travel restrictions, which prevented Ukrainians from searching for food. And they even built watchtowers uh, across the countryside in Ukraine so that they could watch people and prevent the people from accessing food. The final death toll is estimated to be between three and six million people. Dude, that's crazy. Yeah. That is horrible. Yeah. So this is one of the worst genocides in the modern era. And it goes without saying that this type of mass trauma would affect the entire country with very few people not being affected. The researchers for this study wanted to understand how this trauma affected future generations. So they call this transgenerational trauma. It's the study of how a traumatic event affects the posterity of the person who experienced that trauma. So what the researchers did is they interviewed 45 participants from 15 Ukrainian families that contained three successive generations. So each family contained a survivor of the famine, a second generation adult, and a third generation adult all in the same family. So for your stats nugget of the day, this is a qualitative study as opposed to a quantitative study. This means that instead of working with numerical data, they had hours of interview transcripts to work with. So the researchers conducted these interviews. They would get those transcripts, and they'd read through them, and they'd code them for certain themes and look for patterns and what the participants said. So the researchers conducted these interviews mostly in the participants' home, and for about an hour, the researchers would ask each participant questions about their life experiences. So analysis of the transcript showed that the children and the grandchildren of the Holodomor survivors were affected in two main ways. First, trauma-based coping strategies, and second, emotions and interstates.
1: All right, I got a question for you. What does trauma-based coping strategies and emotional interstates mean?
0: Yeah, good question. So those are kind of fancy words, uh, fancy research words. They sound
1: very fancy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So the emotions in the interstates that they reported were fear, sadness, shame, anger, and low self-worth. Um, and then what they mean by... Trauma-based coping strategies are the survival techniques and strategies that the survivors of the famine had to use in order to stay alive. So the coping strategies that they reported were stockpiling of food, extreme reverence for food, inability to discard unwanted items, indifference towards others, social hostility, and risky healthy behaviors.
1: Wow. Social hostility. That one is interesting. I did not see that one coming. Yeah.
0: So there's the stereotype of Eastern Europeans, Russians, Ukrainians, that they are very cold and not very friendly people. And the reality is they are very friendly. They're just not necessarily friendly to someone that they're just passing by on the street. So in America, we often will make eye contact, give a slight little nod, maybe even a smile or say hi. But in Ukraine, it's kind of eyes to yourself, business to yourself unless you're approached, unless you're seeing someone that you are familiar with. But after you get past that hard surface, they are extremely friendly and welcoming.
1: Wow. That is very, very interesting. So emotional interstates are just emotions within us or maybe a combination of emotions. It's a state more than emotion.
0: Yeah. So instead of saying like, I'm feeling sad right now or like, oh man, I, I just got so angry for a moment because I got cut off on the street. It's more of a long-term state that they frequently experience. Oh,
1: I see. So it's a little bit longer than an emotion, which would probably deal with short time periods is what you're saying.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Okay. One thing
0: about those emotions as well is the participants reported both in the moment anger, more temporary anger outbursts, which they call state anger. And they also experienced more of the trait anger that that we kind of just mentioned, which is that longer chronic anger. So for a lot of these people, these emotions were both in the moment things of feeling angry because you got cut off and also just chronic, I'm feeling angry all the time.
1: Interesting. And so They had these emotional states for a really long time, and because they were feeling these things for a really long time, they developed certain habits, or they call them coping strategies, to deal with these emotions, right? Is that what it's saying?
0: Yeah, so with the participants, they obviously lived through something extremely traumatic, and so they would feel these emotions of fear, of anger towards Stalin for doing this to them, and shame and also low self-worth because they didn't have any food and didn't have a livelihood. And they passed these emotions on to their children, and their children and grandchildren, when they mentioned feeling these feelings, they didn't necessarily mention feeling these emotions because their grandparents were telling these stories, but they just lived with these emotions as well. And they had fear towards another genocide, and they felt anger towards Stalin, who's long gone. And sometimes they would feel low self-worth because they thought about the fact that someone did this to their country. So even though all three generations were experiencing the same emotions, and it, it really stemmed
1: from the same event, they, they experienced it in different ways. Wow. So so these trauma-based coping strategies and emotional interstates were passed down then to the subsequent generations.
0: Yeah. So that's exactly where the tomato story comes in. We leave a tomato on a bench. And we come back and it's gone. And who knows who took that tomato? Maybe it was someone who really needed to eat eat it. Maybe it was someone who didn't necessarily need to grab it, but they grabbed it and thought, man, I need to find a use for this tomato. So with these coping strategies of stockpiling food, extreme reverence for food, inability to discard unwanted items, the things that I mentioned... Many participants, even in this study, reported having large bags of salt, sugar, and flour in their houses just out of fear that they might need to use it someday. So even though Ukraine, although right now is a different story, Ukraine generally is way better off than they were in the 1930s, these people still stockpile food and are preparing for some future need of having food, so some future cataclysmic event that they need to be ready for. And so the person who took that tomato who knows what they were doing it with it, but it's, it's not just about the tomato. It's also about this bigger story of Ukrainians as a general people not wasting food, not throwing
1: anything away, and the whole country does that even to this day. Wow. That is amazing that a whole country can be affected that much, and, and generations after that whole country can be affected that much.
0: Yeah, another thing to mention, too, that's really interesting is the second and third generation. Although they reported that these strategies were really prevalent in their lives, they recognized and they thought that they were being irrational in these things. So they were stockpiling food and refusing to throw things away. And as they were doing it, they thought, man, this is just not rational. I don't need to do this. But they
1: did it anyways. Wow. That, that, to me, that sounds a lot like that comes from the genes instead of somewhere else. You know, it sounds like it's coming from genetics instead of. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, there's it's something more. Behavior, yeah, yeah. There's
0: something more telling them to do this than just a learned behavior. There's something more than just their parents teaching them this. There's, oh, cool. there's got to be some. This is where the researchers argue. This is where epigenetics come into play. This transgenerational trauma is showing itself in these behaviors that Ukrainians frequently
1: exhibit. Yes. So there's a bunch more epigenetic studies that are really interesting that we just want to highlight real quick. We won't go into depth, but they're amazing. So Ben, you want to start off?
0: Yeah. So another interesting study we found is that children of Holocaust survivors also reported fear, mistrust, depressive mood and guilt related to their own personal happiness. So this is similar to the Ukrainian study. But one interesting thing that the Holocaust study adds here is that they felt guilty because they were happy. And grandchildren of Holocaust survivors like the Ukrainians also reported higher states of trait and state anger. So that's the temporary anger outbursts as well as the chronic anger. The grandchildren of Holocaust survivors also perceived others negatively, themselves less positively, and were rated by their peers as having lower socioeconomic functioning.
1: What? That's another one that I did not see coming, but that is crazy how much you can be affected. So in a couple that I found I thought were very interesting, they're a little bit more quantitative than qualitative, but they did a six-week exercise regiment for training five days a week, and they took these men that weren't exercising before, put them in this six-week exercise regiment, and then they they saw that the DNA in their sperm actually changed. So, wow. And what was crazy, so after that six weeks, their, their sperm changed. They had the subject stop exercising cold turkey right after their six weeks were up, and then they analyzed their sperm again weeks later. And some of it had reverted back to the original non-exercising state. Wow. So when a switch flips on, it can also flip back off. Yes. It wasn't all of it. So some of the sperm actually continued to keep the changes that it made. Other parts of it just flipped right back. So they dangled the light switch right in the middle. (laughs) Yeah. So it was one of those, you know, like dimming lights. It was halfway (laughs) dim. Okay, there you go. (laughs) But... I thought that was super interesting because that was, that's very quick. That's not like 40 years. It's, it's six weeks and it's six weeks of exercise. So another one that I found that I just, I loved was high fat diets as compared to just a normal healthy control diet of father mice before their children were conceived led to changes in the child, like obesity. Insulin resistance, adipose content increasing, etc., etc. So, all of those you know negative effects for eating only donuts uh-huh. for every meal. Basically, that's a mice equivalent of eating donuts for every meal, right? So, these fathers, if they ate unhealthily six weeks prior to their conception of their children, it led to poorer health in the child, which was crazy. Yeah, wow, I know. So it's like, oh man, now I really got to eat healthy, you know. <laughs> So they did more groups, and they had exercise training and diet training in different groups of fathers before the conception. And it reverted some of those negative effects from the high-fat diet in the children. So the children didn't experience as poor of health if the fathers started this exercise training or diet training before they were conceived.
0: Wow. So once again, that's another example that even if
1: bad things do happen, you can kind of flip those switches back off. Exactly. Exactly. So so you can you can go back the other way by making you know healthier choices. Yeah. So
0: a lot of what we have discussed today involves some serious trauma on a large scale. However, like these other studies show with eating and with exercising, the choices we make and in our individual experiences shape who we are and who our children will be. So whether this is eating or our sleeping habits or how we treat others, future generations will be shaped by our behavior today. Another big takeaway I had for myself is it's important to have compassion, not only for those who have experienced personal trauma, but also the descendants of those who have endured traumatic events, such as war, famine, slavery, abuse, or any other form of trauma, because not only are they psychologically impacted by those experience, but their bodies respond differently to their environment because of it. So it's just important to keep those things in mind because we never know, not only do we not know what that person has been through individually, but we don't know what types of diseases or mental illnesses or experiences that person is susceptible to just because of what happens to their Parents or grandparents or great grandparents. So, when in doubt, just
1: have compassion for others. That was my thought. Yeah. One thing that I took away after reading these epigenetics studies was that for those of you whose parents have had negative experiences, or those people who have mental illness in their family, or those people who have cardiovascular disease in their family, there's hope for you because you can make. Healthy choices, and that's going to change you, but it's also going to change the generation after you and the second generation after you because your decisions will literally change those mental illness genes or those cardiovascular genes or those genes that were affected by a huge famine or those genes that were affected by a war that your parents were in. So there's hope for you, and I would encourage you guys to start now looking for those lifestyle changes, cognitive behavioral therapy, medication, whatever you guys need to do to fight against those those epigenetics that you don't want that are coming down, to fight against them and, and to hold them off and to change you and coming generations.
0: Yeah. We are so much more than just our genes.
1: You have been listening to Noggin, the Simple Psychology podcast. Thank you for listening to our show. We really appreciate it. We have shared with you only two articles of the thousands that have been published on this subject. Though we wish we could go more in depth, we hope you've enjoyed our introduction and interpretation of this topic. We don't claim to know everything, but we have shared with you our takeaways from reading the research. I'm McKay. And I'm Ben. And we hope you have a great rest of your day.